0: invites you to hear a good word from the Scripture about Jesus. So turn with me, if you will, or swipe with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 9 through 15. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, and here are some quotes from the Old Testament, you'll see, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free, oh, there's freedom in this name, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of of death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. If you've ever used a light bulb, Thomas Edison has changed the way that you see. The Wright brothers changed the way that we travel. And Steve Jobs, with some help I understand it, from Alexander Graham Bell, has changed the way that we communicate. But one man has changed the world forever. One man, so much so that generations before him prophesied his coming and every generation after him has heard his name. One man of such importance that we decided to divide time based on his existence. The years B.C., before Christ. The years A.D., Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord, separated by this one man. He was a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. His name? Jesus. So, for the past few weeks, we've been taking a look at the big picture of the Bible taking a look at the overarching story that is told in these 66 books between these two covers. And first, we talked about creation. Ironically, if you want to say, where do I start? The Bible says in the beginning, so that's kind of a good place. And we, we heard that God created a good and purposeful universe, that God intentionally created people in his image, and that God called humanity very good, and that we were made for relationship with God and with other people. That's part of our design. And then, the fall. The story of Adam and Eve's sin that infected the whole world. And then we talk that it's not really just the story of their fall, but of our falling. Because it's not just Adam and Eve that sinned that one time. We all sinned. We all fall short. And last week we talked about Israel, the beginning of God's great rescue mission. I think it's amazing that when the world fell, God didn't say, forget about it, I'm going to get me a new one. What's the return policy on this kind of thing? God set out, To save a sin stained world. And the beginning of his rescue operation, he called an unlikely family. Somebody here thinks it's unlikely that God would call you, but listen to this. God called an unlikely family and gave them a promise I will bless you and make you a great nation. But it wasn't just for their own sake that God did that, God wanted to bless and make them a great nation for the sake of all of the families of the earth. They, like us, were blessed to be a blessing. And so now we turn to the first four books of the New Testament the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do you know what the word Gospel means? Good news. These four books are called Good News because they introduce us to the next episode in God's great big story, and that is Jesus. Good news. Because Jesus is the ultimate answer to the problem of sin found way back in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus, God himself, born in human flesh, he came to restore what was broken. You'll remember in the fall that everything shattered and has been shattered ever since. But Jesus came to put back together that which was broken. To restore our relationship with God and with other people, and even, and some of you need this word today, to restore a relationship with ourselves, so that through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we might be renewed into the image of God, that once again through Jesus that we might be called very good, and that is good news. I mean, think about this. The God who created the universe The God of ancient days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the very same God who, while we were yet sinners, came down into this world that you and me could be set free from our sin and restored into what God always wanted us to be. That's good news. That's worth calling the gospel. And so today we're going to take a look at Jesus' life as described in the Gospels. Now, here's a quick word of warning for you. <clears throat> you might discover, either today or as you read through one of these four Gospels, you might discover that Jesus is a little bit different than you thought he'd be. After all, a lot of us have our favorite images of Jesus. Usually it happens that we like the Jesus at a very particular time that has what we need. Well, maybe you're like, maybe you're like Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. And you love eight pounds, six ounce newborn baby Jesus. He's so cuddly, you can just hold him in your arms and he can't even go nowhere yet. Maybe you view Jesus like this. And you see Jesus cuddling that cute little lamb. And some of us know that lambs aren't always cute as cuddly as they seem to be. You think, oh, I love Jesus cuddling little lambs. If I ever had a lamb, I'd let Jesus cuddle him. I've always liked this one laughing Jesus. Have you all ever seen laughing Jesus? I like laughing Jesus because I like to laugh, and it makes me happy that Jesus would laugh. And you know Jesus had to have a sense of humor to put up with some of those apostles, and I know he has to have a sense of humor to put up with me. And Amanda's, my wife, isn't in here, praise the Lord, because she would have taken over the sermon at this point. Oh, and all of, those, all of those images have their truth, and they really, really do, but the Jesus of the Gospels isn't always quite so harmless You see, Jesus turned the world upside down. Jesus was radical. He came to start a revolution among people, a revolution of the truth of love, of God's love, not just sappy, sweetheart, candy love, but of God's love. And so here's a word of advice for us today, and for whenever you read the Bible. This one's free. Let the Bible tell its own story. Let the Bible tell its own story. Instead of coming with our story and, and then uh, trying to fit the parts of the Bible we like to, to match our story. Because if we do that, then it's no longer God's story offered by God, but it's God's story as presented by us. And it's really not going to turn out great if we do. So, let's take a look at four aspects. I could do this for all year long, but we're just going to try to fit this in right now. Four aspects. Four aspects of Jesus' radical and revolutionary life. First, Jesus' birth was scandalous. Oh, I know, it was a silent night, and round yon virgin mother and child, an infant holy, infant lowly, but listen, before all that, Mary and Joseph, the parents of the holy family, well, let's just say this, they were betrothed, but not quite married. How many of you have ever betrothed? We don't really do it that way so much. Maybe you do, you call it an engagement, but it's a little different. They were betrothed, but not yet married. Meaning, they could, according to custom, do things like live together. But they could not do other things like, ask your mom about what I'm getting at here, okay? Just let them tell you. So one day, Mary turns up pregnant. And Joseph, he's not, a, he's a smart guy. He knows how this thing works. That baby ain't his. And do you know what the punishment was according to the Jewish law for a single girl who ended up pregnant? And Joseph, however, he said, I'm going I'm to keep this on the down low and kind of walk away without a fuss. At least he had heart, right? But then, get this, it gets, even, it gets even more scandalous. Some angels show up in his dream and told him to stick around, and he's like, yeah, I'll do that. Praise the Lord that he did. Now, some of you know what living in a small town is like. Can you imagine explaining all of that to your small town neighbors? Wow. Somebody says, yeah, I can, I've done that. Rumor and conflict and doubt surround Jesus' birth. I love the mercy too. I love the mercy. Because Jesus' coming is, is the very thing that shows us that we are set on a path towards redemption in Him and not to the end of punishment like the law. Oh, praise the Lord that Joseph had mercy on Mary. But that's not just all, that's not all this scandal. That's not all this scandal. Listen to what the angels tell Mary. Uh, especially in the last two, two sentences here in Luke chapter 1. And now you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. You know, real quick, what the word Jesus is? Aramaic is Yeshua, which is Joshua, which is also he saves. Pretty cool. He will be great. I can imagine Mary thinking, good, after all this, he'd better turn out to be something. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow, her miracle child, immaculately conceived, would be a king. We all want good things for our children, right? Well, here we go. That's great, but there's a problem. Because there are already kings in the world, and they like power. Do you remember the story of the wise men? They came to follow the star to go visit the newborn Jesus, and they stop by King Herod's palace thinking, hey, maybe I can get some directions there. And they say, Herod, we're going to go see the newborn king. And Herod is so threatened that there might be another king, even an infantile one, that he orders every child under the age of two dead. Jesus starts a revolution before he can even put on his sandals. His birth is scandalous. Second, his life was radical. Jesus healed the sick and walked on water and fed thousands of people multiple times with the equivalent of some tuna and crackers. That alone is miraculous. That alone is, let's just say it's not average, but Jesus was also a teacher. And in those days, in the culture, the teacher would be rabbi. And so Jesus was a rabbi. And the typical rabbi might point out things like this, that, that especially on more radical ends of practice, that the law said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Well, that one kind of makes sense. Because I love those who love me, and I already don't like those who don't like me, so I'm already halfway to the law, right? But Jesus is not a typical rabbi. You'll find Jesus saying things like this in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yes, yes, I've got that one tattooed right here in Hebrew. <laughs> but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, we get the love your neighbor part, right? Right? I mean, I think that we can agree on that. And we don't always get it done, right? But at least most of us are trying really hard. And that's fantastic. But the this love your enemies thing, though, somebody out here is thinking, I can barely love my in-laws. How can I love my enemies? <laughs> it's radical teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's not just his... That's not the most radical stuff about his teaching. Jesus, through his ministry, contradicted the religious establishment. And he stood up to the governing authorities of Rome. And do you know who doesn't like to be challenged? Religious folk and government folk. Especially when they found themselves in bed together. And Jesus finds himself on the end of controversy extremely early in his ministry. And it starts, get this, in the Gospel of Luke, he goes to his hometown church it's like one of y'all been gone for a while and you come back and you want to stand up and say something. Those folks tried to drive him off a cliff and you're glad we don't live in the hilly part of the state. His own people. And then not one, but two kings want him dead pretty early on in the story. And then the religious people are like, this would be so much easier if he was gone. And by uh, mid-story in the Gospels, the religious elite have taken out a contract on Jesus' life, Godfather style. And sadly, they pull an inside man to pull double duty, and it's Judas, his own follower. Jesus calls us to do more than admire him from a distance or even to pick our favorite part of the things that he does. Jesus calls us to enter into this radical life with him, a life of true god given love for all people. A life of justice that seeks to make right the wrongs that sin and the powers of darkness bring onto people. A life of compassion that drives us from our gut to go and enter into the suffering of other people to bring the redemption of Jesus Christ. And it won't always be easy. Just try loving your enemies for a week. But it is the way of Jesus, and it's the way that he teaches Third, his death was shameful. His death was shameful. The power elite finally catch up with Jesus and stage a kangaroo court. The religious leaders bring him up on deceitful religious charges and hand him over to Pontius Pilate who is the Roman governor of Judea, and the reason they do this is because they have the authority to say that he did something wrong religiously, but they don't have the authority to say that he needs to die, and so let's just go to Pontius Pilate for that. Pontius Pilate's presence there in the area was just a way of Rome saying, boom, I got a guy in the house. You're not as big as you think you are, and Pontius Pilate, he's got a tragic story. Read it if you want. He tries to wash his hands of avoiding truth and when I'm still reading about that today, I guess he didn't have enough soap. Pontius Pilate finds Jesus innocent of the charges and is, in fact, a little bit aghast that he's even dealing with religious charges. But he brings them up before the crowd because he always wants to make people happy, yay. And the religious leaders, get this, it's the religious leaders that walk among the crowd and rile them up so that when... Pontius Pilate gives people a chance to let Jesus go free, the religious leaders incite the crowd to shout, no! Crucify him! And soldiers beat him like a common criminal. Soldiers who were just doing their duty, it was what they were told. And they dragged him, get this, Golgotha, the place where he's crucified is Golgotha, otherwise known as Calvary. They dragged him out to the garbage dump outside the city walls. Do you know why? Because the religious law said it was impure to kill somebody inside the city. So the things that we care about, right? Gosh, they were so pure, weren't they? And Jesus says in Luke 23, when they came to a place called the Skull, that's the translation of Calvary, they nailed him the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus died a criminal's death in shame, degraded, and humiliated. He didn't just take him out in private. He put him out on the main roadside as a way of saying this is a ghastly lawn decoration. This is not a man." This is not a human. Don't ever do what this man did. But Jesus wasn't a criminal. He wasn't a criminal. He didn't die for his sin. He didn't die for his mistakes. He died for everyone else's sin. He died for your sin. And he died for my sin. And he hung there in shame, but it wasn't his shame that it was hanging on his shoulders when he was hanging on the cross. It was our shame. It was our shame that sat on his shoulders, dying, being worn by the Savior of the world so that one day we wouldn't have to anymore. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. I don't know if we'd be here today if that was the end of the story. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. It turns out that when God becomes flesh and you have a Savior who is fully God and fully human, that though death can hold a regular man, death cannot hold Jesus. The grave cannot keep him, as the song says. And so what we see is that his resurrection was life-giving. His victory over sin and death and all that he endured means our salvation. It means Because Jesus rose from the dead, listen, that there is life after the worst thing that can happen to us. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is life after your greatest mistakes. There is life after the worst thing that somebody could do to you has been done to you. And there's not only life after that, there's life after death. And that life is eternal life. Because as the scriptures told us in Hebrews that Jesus defeated the one who has power over death and he did that for one and all who would call upon his name. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says it just puts it this way I love it because of his great mercy it says God because of God's great mercy he gave us new life by raising Jesus Christ from death. He gives us new life By raising Jesus Christ from death. And this fills us, Peter says, with a living hope. Because if death cannot be the end and if the grave cannot hold the people of God, if that is the case, then there is nothing that can take away our hope because we know that the worst thing will never be the last thing. And some of you are in the middle of a pretty bad thing right now. And I want to tell you that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you may endure the worst thing, but joy comes in the morning. There will always be one more thing because God has won it and he is faithful and he has promised it to his children and you cry out to his name and you say, please, oh God, I turn to you. And he says, look, just over there, you've taken your last step over this bad thing. And in the horizon, all you will ever see is life life with me, and life eternal, because his resurrection gives us new life. Will we ever have problems? Oh, yes, we will. But do you know the difference between looking down at the terrain on your feet and looking to the horizon? This is a big step, but if I'm walking forward, it's one small step, and I'm thankful I didn't fall down just now. His resurrection is life-giving. And so long story short... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, came to start a revolution of love and power and new life. And through his coming, through his birth and life and death and resurrection, he restores us to the goodness of God's creation. And he invites us, not just to receive it, but to join him in it, in this revolution of love, of God's love and saving power. And in the next episode, that revolution will be called the church. Not a bunch of buildings, but the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do the unimaginable, to witness to Jesus' name where they are and to the ends of the earth. And that, my friends, is our story, too. Amen. We have an opportunity, a real